Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists empowerment talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent family, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action blo- auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power, power, one broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. You're listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground. I welcome you to the 2014 broadcast season opening of Our Common Ground. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. 2014 at Our Common Ground. Black America, a state of emergence. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you become part of the Our Common Ground family in 2014, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. You're here because you know something. What do you know you can't explain? But you feel it. You felt it your entire life. That there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there. Like a splinter in your mind. 
driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Even now, in this very room, you can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. You are a slave. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. More bad news for the African-American community, as the census reports the highest level of poverty for them since 1959. 27.4% of the country's 44 million blacks, one in four, earns less than $11,000 a year, what the government considers a bare minimum income to survive. Most of the impoverished 11 million are children who are born into the poor households. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. ...to the Justice Department, a hate crime is committed every hour. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. According to the National Asian Pacific American Legal, Legal Defense Consortium, although white men are only 48%, of the college-educated workforce, 48%, they hold 85% of the tenured college positions, 86% of law firm partnerships, more than 90% of the top jobs in the news media, and 96% of CEOs. When there are no jobs or there are no decent housing, you see, then you put them on drugs that will calm them down. To themselves that they still feel inferior. They're going to have to admit that they do think white people are more intelligent. They're going to have to admit that they think white people are more beautiful. They're going to have to admit that they don't think black people are capable of self-government. You have to sit down, pull out a piece of paper, and write down every negative belief you have about yourself and your race. And then once you see what it is you think about yourself that is inaccurate, you then have to deliberately work on reconditioning your unconscious. And the way you recondition your unconscious is by consciously keeping negative content from coming into the mind while at the same time constantly introducing your mind and repeating within your mind positive information. See, the unconscious is the creature of habit. The reason why we hate ourselves so well is because we were taught that we were nothing for 243 years. So you can imagine told the same thing for 243 years, the conditioning is strong. So to uncondition, you have to do the same thing. Now, the good news is it won't necessarily take you 243 years to uncondition the self-hatred, but it will be extensive. The problem is we're still allowing ourselves to be subject to negative information, and we're allowing our children to be subject to negative information as well. Our children are being victimized by white supremacy because we're not controlling who teaches them. We're not controlling where they're taught. We're not controlling the music, the movies, or the information that they're looking at. Okay. And is it a male or a female? 
It sounds like a male. And you don't know why? I don't know why. I think they're yelling help, but I don't know. Just send someone quick. Okay. Does he look hurt? I can't see him. I don't want to go out there. I don't know what's going on. So they're sending. So you think he's yelling help? Yes. The skyrocketing rate of incarceration has left the United States with the highest incarceration rate in the world. The issue ties together many social aspects, such as the connection between the massive rate of imprisonment for nonviolent drug use, rampant poverty, and the growing political influence of private prison industries that thrive on inmate population as cheap forms of labor. The struggle for survival in the United States is the handling of this never-ending tension between the institutional values of race, gender, and wealth, which give undue and unearned privileges and advantages to some so that others cannot compete on an equal basis for the resources of this country. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you this important bulletin from the United Press. Black people still don't get it. 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 You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Talk, talk, that matters. Transforming truth, truth to power. One broadcast at a time. Now to our common ground with Janice Graham. And good evening and thank you for joining us in our opening broadcast for the 2014 broadcast season, Black America, a state of emergency. Thank you for joining us and we hope that you enjoyed your holiday and that you have made the transition successfully and powerfully into this new year. For those of you who are new to our Common Ground, thank you for joining us. And for our family and family of listeners, um, thank you for being with us, and we certainly um, enjoy your support and am grateful for it. I am doing fine. We hope you are ready for this 2014 broadcast year. We have themed it this year, Black America, a state of emergency, because it is time for us to really 
believe that we cannot be in this war and only one side is fighting. We have to fight for our children, our future, our visibility, our viability, and our empowerment in order to enjoy the privilege of citizenship in a country that makes sense. And right now, America is not making any sense. Tonight at Our Common Ground, we are going to be meeting with um, Dr. Byron Price to talk about the profit motive and the pipeline and the use of prisoners in America's new prison industrial complex, which is becoming increasingly and majorly privatized and why that is. And we hope that you will join us in this discussion. I hope you'll also stay with us in our second hour. Uh, we are going to be bowing deep and holding up an eternal ovation to a giant that fell and became one of our honored ancestors this week on Thursday. Um, our nation and this world of this universe of humanity lost a giant of a warrior for liberation and humanity, Amari Baraka. I met him first as a young, young person. I was a college student, um, and my tutelage and my journey in his wisdom began at that time at Yale University at a black student uh, union conference, and I'll be talking about that at the time I knew him as Leroy Jones. Thank you again for being with us. Uh, we're going to get started on this discussion about the motivation of economics, the basis of the privatization privatization of prisons in America, and we hope you will join us in our discussion. Uh, to help us frame this uh, most important element of our state of emergency is Dr. Byron Price. He's the former dean of the School of Business and a professor of public administration at Medgar Evers College of the City University of New York in Brooklyn. He formerly served as an associate professor of political science in the Barbara Jordan Mickey Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University in Houston. And he spent five years at Rutgers University in Newark. And, um, at the School of Public Affairs and Administration, where he served as an assistant professor and director of the MPA, which is the Masters of Public Administration, and executive MPA programs, as well as a number of other leadership positions, including serving as an associate director of the National Center for Public Performance and the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Public Management and Social Policy. He is a leading scholar in the field of pr prison privatization, the author of a 2006 book, 
which is central and focused on the issue of the privatization of American prisons and the merchandising of prisoners, and it is entitled Merchandising Prisoners Who Really Who Really Pays for Prison Privatization, and he also has co-edited three a three-volume set entitled Pri- Prison Privatization, a Controversial uh, Industry, which was published in 2012. He is the product of the Lemoyne Gardens Housing Project in Memphis, Tennessee, a housing project which was profiled on the History Channel's Gangland series. Through hard work and steadfast support from his family and friends, he has proven that education lifts all sales and that living black in America teaches many, many lessons and provides insight and the highway to service to our people. He received his BS and MPA from Texas Southern University and MBA from Oklahoma City University and his PhD in public policy and administration from Mississippi State University. And we certainly welcome Dr. Byron Price to help us frame this issue. And right after this, he'll be joining us in this discussion, and we hope that you will as well. Our number is 347-838-9852. This is Our Common Ground, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. We're glad you're with us tonight. And for those who are listening on smart devices and you'd like to join our chat room, you can do so at www.blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG and you can come right into our chat room either as a guest or you can register and be a part of the conversation. Prison industrial complex and the skyrocketing rate of incarceration has left the United States with the highest incarceration rate in the world. The issue ties together many social aspects such as the connection between the massive rate of imprisonment for nonviolent drug use, rampant poverty, and the growing political influence of private prison industries that thrive on inmate population as cheap forms of labor. So what's an incarcerated criminal worth? What companies run these prisons? And how and what impact does the growing industry of private prisons have on communities that are now relying on these prisons as their only economic basis? Anywhere from 170 to 200,000 uh, individuals serving time in private prisons. The history of private prisons started with what was called convict leasing. Historically, private prisons were part of something called convict leasing. At the end of slavery in the United States, you had these huge plantations that still needed workers, but slavery was outlawed. And so what would happen is facilities in the South in particular would engage in convict leasing. They would lease large numbers of convicts to plantation owners, um, to factory owners, and that forced labor essentially was the beginning of privatization of the corrections process. Then you saw a bit of a hiatus, and then in the huge jump in incarceration between the 70s and the year 2000, um, we saw an increase in um, privatization of prisons. You saw the development of the CCA, the Correctional um, Corporation of America, and GEO, which is at one point the Wackenhut Group. Those are the two primary uh, prison, private prison providers in the United States. The downturn occurred in 2008, 
um, began to gravitate toward private prisons um, as a way to generate income. The promise was build a prison, we'll bring uh, inmates from out of the area and we'll fill your facilities. CCA threatened to sue one community for not sending enough prisoners even though there were problems with escapes in Arizona. Um, so I think that there's, there are those kinds of economic impacts. Private prisons spend an enormous amount of money lobbying. And then there is the issue of inhumane treatment in the facilities. Well, you know, throughout the country, medical care, health care for people who are incarcerated is abysmal, with few exceptions. And New York is, is no different. And part of this is because of the economy. And so there's not enough dollars that are being spent to provide people with adequate medical care. Dental care is absolutely abysmal. People who have substance abuse treatment issues are being treated kind of in a cookie-cutter approach so that it's a one-size-fits-all, no matter how old or long someone has had an addiction problem. And so we have found that this is an ongoing problem. In addition, we found major problems with respect to the treatment of the mentally ill. There's a disproportionate number of people who have mental illness um, who are incarcerated. Put them in prison, and in the process, you get rid of the problems they supposedly have. You hide the problems of poverty by incarcerating people. And in the process, of course, you create another profitable enterprise. You create a profitable prison industrial complex. Mass incarceration is not only payback for the civil rights movement, but it reflects a fundamental choice that has been made about how we as a nation will define ourselves in this era of global capitalism. Who the winners and losers will be, how they will be defined, and how those at the bottom will be dealt with, and the message it will send to the rest of us. The profit has entered into the equation. Private prisons own prisons, and their stock trades on the stock exchange. So there's a vested interest in incarceration. Even once they freed us from slavery, the prison system didn't actually start until they freed black males and they couldn't recapture their free prison labor. So the, our system of capitalism actually exploits labor. So they have to um, incarcerate to get away with extracting free labor. So mm -hmm. I think it's a, a sinister plot as well behind this over-incarceration of minorities. Tonight at Our Common Ground, the economics of the privatization of American prisons. Our guest, author, professor, and scholar, expert on the privatization of prisons in America, Dr. Byron E. Price. We invite you to join us in this discussion at 347-838-9852. listening to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Dr. Byron E. Price, thank you so very much for joining us here at Our Common Ground tonight. Uh, thanks for having me, Ms. Graham. Uh, you don't have to call me Ms. Graham. <laughs> okay. This is our sanctuary. This is where black truth reigns. All and right. the truth is, I'm Janice. <laughs> okay, I'm uh, okay, Janice. I, I I have read so much of what 
you have been doing around the issue of the economics of private prisons in America, the motive, the economic motives, and uh, how uh, it all works in regard to rebounding on other social issues. But one of the things I want to talk to you about first and ask you to talk about is the issue of how this all began. And I know that long before we were talking about Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, you were doing this research. You were writing. Your book was published in 2006 around the merchandising of prisoners and privatization. But what are the, the, the if you had to say what are the five or six top issues of, of this whole movement of privatizing and filling prison cells, what would they be? First and foremost, uh, profit. And and I disagree. I was listening to some of the commentary about, uh, they said, the convict leasing system is no longer in existence, but the convict leasing system is still in existence because they still lease out convict labor to corporations. So I say profits. But also, when you think about this idea of uh, defunding uh, the welfare state, and and when you think about neoliberalism, neoliberalism and is also behind privatization of prisons as well, because neocons uh, that that champion neoliberalism want to privatize everything, education, the military, you name it, they want to privatize it. So. I say neoliberalism, and I said profit. But also, uh, when you think about whites have a zero growth rate, and when and when you take it into consideration, black and brown are going to be majority population. There's really no path to the uh, president to the presidency for a Republican when you look at the uh, shifting demographics. And so, one way to mitigate uh, this population uh, growth by blacks and Hispanics is to incarcerate them because you lose the right to vote in a lot of states called felony disenfranchisement. So you lose the right to vote. So also social control, when you think about social control, you know, this is a way to maintain the status quo. You control the working class and, and you think about you margin and, and this marginalization has shifted from the dispensing of public service to the use of prisons and justify with the argument that the citizen must take on personal responsibility. See, they, and I also say that the expansion of the prison system and the defunding of the welfare states, state rather, are two sides of the same political coin, in my opinion, such that this generosity of the latter is in direct proportion to the stinginess of the former, and it expands to the degree that both are driven by moral behaviorism. And so those are some of the things that I see in respect to why private prisons basically are here. And and more so, as I said, I think you you had picked one of my uh, quotes before. You know, they already extracted labor from uh, African Americans doing slavery. And then once they freed us, then they had to find a way to recapture that slave labor. And that was by developing the, the prison system. And so they would, 
incarcerate us for what lottering. I mean, they wouldn't give us a job, so you're standing around, so they would incarcerate you. Then you think about the, um, what do you call it, the uh, sharecropping system. So, I mean, there have been so many ways they have exploited our labor, and we've never been compensated for our labor. So at the end of the day, it's really about exploitation as well, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. In one in one of your articles, you talk about uh, co- the companies uh, which have had great success uh, and are the largest um, in private prisons. But one of the things that I haven't seen the government, which I would imagine would never happen, but I have not seen. Uh, advocacy groups that oppose private prisons talking about how these how how the, how this movement of the increased mm-hmm. privatization of prisons came about now we all know that it it really uh has to have a great deal of a political lobbying going on mm-hmm. in order yes. to, you know, the the the, uh, the leading for-profit prisons like Corporation of America and Geo Group and Cornell companies, they have to spend an awful lot of energy and resources in order to have become the top three companies. How did that happen? Well, well, it, it happened this way. Well, now Cornell companies basically has been. Um purchased by uh, the GEO group. So Cornell Companies has, uh, is a part of the GEO group now. So you really have Corrections Corporation of America and the GEO group. But it started um, with the uh, Corrections Corporation of America started in my home state of Tennessee. You know, it's something about Tennessee. The Ku Klux Klan started in Tennessee as well, Pulaski, Tennessee. So Corrections Corporation of America started in Tennessee as well. And so Basically, what you what you, what you have to come to understand, it was Beasley and the other guy. Or I can't think of his name, but they started Corrections Corporation of America. Now, Governor Alexander, who was Senator Alex, who was who was Governor Alexander, who was Senator Alexander, presently, basically was going to privatize the entire Tennessee prison system because Beasley used to be the chairman of the Republican Party of Tennessee. Okay, he was the Republican chairman of the Tennessee Republican Party. So he was going to privatize the entire Tennessee prison system. And quite frankly, Governor Alexander's wife, Honey Alexander, owns Stock and Corrections Corporation of America. So a lot of these uh, groups like Corrections Corporation of America and the GEO group, they started by people who used to be uh, in high offices in the government, and it was like in the Republican Party and in the government. So you take into consideration they have the contact. And so they they leverage their contacts and their social capital to get support for private prisons. But also, when you think about the American Legislative Exchange Council, which is a what they talk about was responsible for the stand your ground. I heard of a piece about um, Trayvon in there. But the American Legislative Exchange Council had passed the stand your uh, ground laws in Florida. But to go back to the American Legislative Exchange Council is a conservative think tank that sort of uh, develops a lot of legislation on privatization. So about a third or more of our state legislators hold membership in the American Legislative Exchange Council. Now, Corrections Corporation of America and the GEO Group fund the operational budget of the American Legislative Exchange Council. 
and for funding the operational budget of the American Legislative Exchange Council. They get seats on the Criminal Justice Task Force Committee with those state legislators who they contribute to their campaigns. So American uh, Corrections Corporation of America basically contributed um, in the 2000 election cycle, American excuse me, Corrections Corporation of America contributed uh, about a million dollars to legislators. And in that particular 2000 election cycle, 25 states passed truth and sentencing laws. Okay, so what's the implications of truth and sentencing laws? Well, you have to serve 85% of your time. And these state legislators who they were on the same criminal justice task force committee went back to their state legislature and passed those laws. And so people served more times and so for proper prisons made more money. So they lobbied for laws like mandatory sentencing, truth and sentencing. They were lobbying to abolish uh, probation and parole. And so they're looking for ways to make money. Even the Governor Brewer, um, Senate Bill 1070, uh, the, the immigration bill, where Governor Brewer's Chief of Staff used to lobby for Corrections Corporation of America, and the Chief of a Finance, um, a Chief of Finance there, basically his wife, he owns a company, and his wife basically works for Corrections Corporation of America, and so they drafted uh, Arizona 1070, that uh, Senate Bill 1070. So. Mm -hmm. Here, this is how it plays out. You have all these people, and here's another thing. President Obama appointed, um, I can't think of the lady name, who's over the U.S. Marshal, where she used to lobby and receive various, she used to lobby for uh, the GEO Group and receive various contracts from the GEO Group. Now she's over the U.S. Marshal Service. And federal privatization, prison privatization, has been a growing state, sort of has kind of, sort of ebbed, uh, it's sort of like peaked, rather. And so you have all these people that are basically, there's a lot of conflict of interest. There are a lot of people who still lobby, and there are a lot of people con connected to this industry. So, you know, it's, a, it's, 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 it's about profits. It's about the poor. It's about profits and the poor and, and scaling down the welfare state. Removing well, it is the clear that... This profit profit motive uh, takes a great deal has a great deal of success without a great deal of pushback from citizens in this country, and I'm wondering uh, if you will talk about some other policies that have fed. I mean, we think about the school to to prison pipeline, but we don't think about the legislative pipeline that, uh, pipeline that gets created by legislation. For instance, the the whole body of law which has to do with what uh, people call the war on drugs. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the whole body of laws which have to do with mandatory sentencing. Yes. It seems that I mean, it, 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 and the rise of white supremacy groups, political empowerment of white supremacy groups that are uh, essentially have some political agency, and the rise of the politics of the Tea Party and the neoconservative evangelical movement in this country. Mm -hmm. And 
and and and and it seems as though to me uh dr price that we might even think that this was a, a strategic plan business plan that was created and all the pieces got put into place and that is why we are where we are today in terms of the number of um, prisons that mm-hmm. are private and have no regard for the social ills created mm-hmm. by their organizations. Talk to us about that. Well, in my opinion, in my opinion, black people don't care about um, black people getting incarcerated. When I have conferences on. Um, Oh, now you done started something on yeah, our no, 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 I'm serious. When when I have conferences yeah. related to private prison, I only have white scholars that come and, and try to and talk about this issue now. But when they took off the game, the TV show, three million black people wrote in to have the game show put back on. I mean, you know, about this football show, the game. So, you know, black people's priorities are pretty messed up. And even the Congressional Black Caucus, when they passed the war on many of the laws associated with the war on drugs, the Congressional Black Caucus voted for a lot of those laws. So, you know, we elect a lot of uninformed uh, politicians, and we don't hold the black politicians accountable in our communities. What do we get from our black politicians? Even President Obama told us to stop complaining, take off your shoes, and march with me. You know, politics is about quid pro quo. You know, when you vote for someone, you're supposed to pay up. You know, I understand that the president can't do everything, but you shouldn't speak to people that gave you 98% of their vote like that. You have to find a way to try to sort of do what you can. We, we, we understand that you can't do certain things for, the, for us, but you owe us. That's just politics, and you, you're supposed to cash in. But black people never cash in. Even Bill Clinton, the so-called first black president, said black people never ask for anything. Well, why should they ask for anything? You're supposed to have been the first black president. You're supposed to do these things. You made promises. So we don't hold politicians accountable. But also, when you think about our historic black colleges and universities, where they are consumers of K-12 education, but they don't engage those those schools. I mean, they're closing uh, schools all around the country. In Philadelphia, they close all those schools. And they and they built like and they spent four hundred fifty two million dollars on new prison, but they closed about twenty three schools. So you know, I think Lincoln is in Pennsylvania. One of the Lincolns in Pennsylvania. You think about the the black colleges that are there. You know, what are we doing? Where's the leadership? You know, I hear uh, Al Sharpton. He went to Barney's, but we never heard anything about that. He probably Reverend Sharpton probably got on the board, and he's getting paid. And, you know, I'm just saying, but he's not the only one. A lot of people go in and speak on our behalf, and then we don't get anything out of it but a conversation and people sort of talk about things. So so some of the things, you know, we create the problem. Black people spend $1.1 trillion, but, you know, what do we spend that on? We don't own anything. You talked about CEOs. Well, why should white people hire you? You know, they get tired of hiring you. So why don't you create some companies and hire other black people? Nobody's gonna hire black felons but us. People that we let we allow them to go to jail. So I just see a lot of problems, you know, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we basically could do something about, but we keep on laying around thinking that people who enslave you and people who con- who continue to exploit you. And I think it was a Jewish guy they said said black people are liquid money. 
we keep depending on people. We spend money. When I was in Jamaica, I saw the Indians own a lot of the uh, property down there. The Arabs, when I walked in my street, Arabs own. Everybody owns something in our community except for us, and they don't spend money back in our community. So they don't spend on our schools. They don't spend money on our schools. They don't put any money in our community, and we keep giving them our money. So we give people our money that basically despise us. So what do you expect? You let people educate your kids that don't love your kids. And it's a lot of black people don't love your kids either that's educating your kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk about felony disenfranchisement and this whole notion of this system, this game that has already been put into play has now is being used to further suppress black voters in 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 this country by exploiting the quirks in the census that's created by where these private prisons are being located and you know that prior yeah, to redistricting yeah. they yeah. um draw state and county legislative districts to their benefit using yeah. prisoners because the census says that you have to that you count prisoners where they are incarcerated Exactly, and, and but one of the good things I can say about Governor Patterson of New York, basically he he outlawed that. Okay, but you're right. A lot of, when when prisoners are incarcerated from these urban uh, districts and they're sent to rural communities, then they're counted in those rural communities, and sometimes there are more prisoners in in that are in that community. And so once they count them in those communities then dollars are appropriated to those communities, federal dollars uh, appropriated there. Okay, representation, as you said, is uh, appropriate there. So then you get someone that represents you that doesn't represent your interests, and then they vote for laws to keep you incarcerated, to keep you disenfranchised. So uh, here's the problem with felony disenfranchised, in, in, my, res- in, my, in my opinion. You know, I think if there's a sinister, sinister uh, nature behind that as well because, as I said earlier, blacks, Basically, I think we had an earlier conversation where blacks and browns basically are going to be the majority population. And so one way to sort of uh, stunt their political power, their future political power, is to incarcerate them because you lose the right to vote. So that way you can still maintain control. You see the gerrymandering, that's why you can't change the balance of the House because they've gerrymandered those seats. And so... Yes, it's undermining our political power, but we don't do anything with our political power anyway, though. We vote for people, and then we don't hold them accountable. I well, mean, how, how, to, to what extent can we contribute, uh, attribute uh, that to a serious discussion that we, have not, that we need to continue to have over and over and over, and that is the social pathology that yes. gets sold in this country of black people, the myth of cultural, as you wrote in one of your in one of your pieces, the myth of cultural deprivation, innate inferiority, social disadvantagement, and 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 it is used as a way to fight us back because we feel we have no argument to it. What, what do you think about that? Well, but see, see, I, I put some of that fault on us because I teach at age. I, t- I t- taught at a couple of HBCUs, and one of the things I see is I see a lot of kids in the school system are, are, are there 
to learn and for us to create an environment, but a lot of people around, they're worried about their title. They're sleeping with the students. Okay, so everywhere they, the students turn, they're being exploited. And so, you know, we have to get to a point where, you know, we embrace what our ancestors are when they founded these colleges. You know, Booker T. Washington and uh, George Washington Carver, he stayed on the campus at Tuskegee and, and, and taught future scientists. And so, in my opinion, at some point, black people have to look at everybody come over and they become successful, except for us. You know, we're still doing the same thing. We still vote for the same people, and we expect to get something different. At some point, you know, we, we have to take some responsibility. I, I get it. I understand, you know, I'm an old soldier as well. And so if we can all enumerate the strategies of the so-called enemy, what they're doing to us, but, you know, most of us, when we fight a war, we we know what the enemy is doing. We can kill a man an enemy every time. Uh, figuratively speaking. So my, my point is, you know, Marcus Garvey tried it, a few others have tried it, you know, Pan-Africanists, they've tried to sort of uh, do something about this. And I, I'm a Pan-Africanist as well. But, but you know, I, I get what you're saying. You know, I, I get what you're saying. But I, I think it's going to take for us to sort of look at how, you know, okay, Kwanzaa just passed by. Everybody can break down there and guzu saba and quote all that stuff up. Whatever we produce, you know, we 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 spend a lot of money, but whatever we produce. And to answer your question, I think we should go to project-based learning as well, you know, because our kids are being over-tested, that education is not interested. I think something we, we need to get rid of a lot of these tests that they're making billions of dollars off, which which is creating the uh, fodder for the school, the prison pipeline as well, because a lot of people are pushing our students out because they said they can't pass these tests. So that's not an incentive to keep them in school because the money is tied to their performance on the test scores. And, see, there are so many things that can be done, but I think one of the first things I would do if I if I could lead a mass movement is get all the kids to say, we're not taking these tests. Mm-hmm. We, mm-hmm. we want to get educated. We want to become critical thinkers. We don't want to sit up and... and and get and take tests all day every day. We want to build things, okay? We want to think critically. We want to analyze things. So, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. there are a lot of people talk about this problem, but I think until we understand and embrace economics, we're going to continue to have issues with civil rights and human rights because we don't own Jew, Jewish people are a small minority, but they they control a lot of wealth. They don't have problems anymore. Black people have problems because you depend on other people for your sustenance. You depend on other people for, to educate you. You depend on other people to get you out of trouble. I, I think that all of that connects into how successful this movement has been to formalize through law yes. the privatization yes. of prisons, which goes back to a history uh, born yes. right after slavery, the post, um, the, the the period after slavery, when as um, da- uh, David Blackburn points out in... Doug Blackman, uh, and slavery by another name. Slavery by another name. Yeah. But one of the things I'd like to hear you talk about 
is this I, in in one of in 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 your book and in one of your pieces you wrote that given the disproportionate number of black males incorporated it begs the 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 question of the 60% of the people in prison are now racial and ethnic yeah. minorities uh of why are so many black men the target of the prison industrial complex, and you posed that a corollary question is was in order, and that the question would be: Is there a motive behind keeping black men in prison? Yes. Because I think private prisons have a lot, lot more flexibility and functionality to imprison black men than government-sponsored prisons. Speak to that for 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 a minute. Well, of course, you know, because it's it's basically they've come, basically they've, private prisons stock trades on the stock exchange. Correction Corporation of America paid out a six hundred fifty-seven million dollar dividend in April twenty thirteen. Okay, to those people that invested into these uh, private prisons. So here you have people. And now it's about this free labor. So you think about it. They don't have this. They don't have to go to Mexico or China for free free labor. The prison system provides the free labor. So the corporations and the way they're the way they're getting where they're incarcerating black people because they're hollowing out government. Who's mostly concentrated in government jobs? Black people. So black people are the ones that they privatize. Every time they privatize a government agency, a lot of blacks lose their jobs. Where are these eight, nine million jobs that have gone, permanently gone? They're service-based jobs. Now you no longer can make a livable wage. And most people are going to survive. And so private prisons, as you talk about in the legislation, they're demonizing people on welfare. And so they're spending, here's the thing, this is how important prison spending is. Now Mississippi built like no new colleges in the 50-year period, but they built 26 prisons, okay? Now, the state of California built only one college in a 15-year period, but built, like, 30 prisons. In Pennsylvania, I told you earlier, they built 20, they they closed 23 schools, but they built a couple, two prisons, for, and, they, and they spent $452 million on the prisons, I believe, if I remember correct. So a lot of this spending on prison is squeezing out spending on education, okay? So, you know, you spend $15.6 billion on prisons in 1986, $38.2 billion was spent on higher education in 2001, okay? So the investment that states are making is clear, prisons before public schools. And, and, and that really brings us to the pipeline, uh, yes. school prison pipeline. But here's because another point for you before you come to that. Here's another quick point. And I'm, uh-huh. California, for example, spends 50000 per inmate each year and $80,852 per pupil per year. And that's insane unless there's another agenda. That's just the bottom line. It is, and, and, and you think about it, in some cities there what they what you call million dollar blocks. This is areas where the states have spent millions of dollars to incarcerate the residents rather than to educate them. And of course, these are typically 
have low performing schools. And also when you you look let's look at Los Angeles again. In these in these areas, sixty nine of the native low performing schools, sixty seven percent are in neighborhoods with high incarceration rates. So they push out a lot of our kids and expel them, and so there's no education in it. And when once kids get incarcerated, a lot of schools won't take them back in. So who are educating those kids? Those kids can get back in school. So you talked about solutions. Some of us that run charter schools should run a charter school to reclaim a lot of kids that are going to juvenile that need a place to come back and go to school because other schools aren't letting them in. So these dropouts, so we have these dropout factories, okay? And so as a result, these kids aren't getting educated. Once they drop out, they usually wind up in prison. And then coupled with the zero-tolerance policies in schools, which people like the American Legislative Exchange Council uh, lobby for those kind of policies, and, of course, the private prisons, remember, fund their operational budget, so the private prisons are lobbying for zero-tolerance policies in schools as well. Okay? And then you put metal detectors. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I hear you. I hear you saying connecting all these dots, and it is just mind-boggling to think that uh, black activists, people who say that they're committed to uh, black liberation, don't have a map of the money. Where the well, lobby but, dollars? But, but who's the can, lobby dollars? You can find the money. It's the, this group called State, um, and and I find a link and send it to you so you can share it with the readers. But it's called Follow the Money, and that's why I got it when I did my dissertation. You said I've been writing on it since 2006. Actually, I published my dissertation on prison, on, on, on private prison, and I published that uh, in 2002. So I've been writing on private prison since like '98, <laughs> and so. But you can follow the money. Exactly. Uh, we've got a few minutes before the uh, top of the hour, Dr. Price, and we've got some call. We've got lots of callers, but okay. I do want to make sure that I get callers in. But uh, you, you've talked about the school to pipeline uh, conspiracy because <laughs> it's a conspiracy, folks. It's it, it, it is a strategic plan underway that we are now just taking a look at. And we're not yet taking it seriously, which is why we're declaring 2014 Black America a state of emergency. Our guest, if you've just joined us, is Dr. Byron E. Price. And we're going to go to 850. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. 850? I guess 850 moved away from the phone, but 850 has his hand up, and I'm going to put him back on mute. Before we go to a break, Dr. Price, talk to us a little about what, how you frame and define this whole notion and concept of merchandising prisoners. Well, one system. of the things that I, that I thought of, because if you see my book, I have a black silhouette. And I have bars, and the bars run into a, a cash register. Mm-hmm. And so what they what, what they're doing is basically, you know, history repeat continues to repeat itself. They've commodified us. Okay, we were shadow slavery. They owned us, so we were property. But and then you know they they exchanged us. They were buying sellers like in Blackman's book. He talked about 
Well, once somebody arrested me, I worked it off the time, and maybe it was $25 left for me, and then somebody else would buy, buy me, and I had to work off 10, 10 years for 25 So it's the same thing. You know, yeah. people people own, people still own us. And our kids, the thing that's frustrating is our kids are enamored with going to jail. They think it's cool to go to jail. And these rappers, you know, they, they bear some responsibility. You know, they keeping like, I mean, these people in the media, they talking about when Lil Wayne got out of Rikers Island, like it's cool to go to Rikers Island. It's not cool to go to jail. It, mm-hmm. It's, you know, a lot of the guys who have come out, like, uh, people that I know, you know, I, I won't call their names. They're doing great work. But, you know, they'll tell you, you know, if they could do it over, they would do it over. But our kids have to get away from this thug life. And, 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 and you know, I know this is a digression, but when I left New York, it was like one degrees last week. Don't you know I saw kids sagging with one degree? I said, so, I mean, it's one degrees outside and they sagging their pants. So I'm wondering, you know, how can we take this sort of, uh, sort of, uh, I guess, this, this express, they want to express themselves in this sort of resilience they have to sort of express themselves to channel that into something positive. I think if we can figure that out, we can get ahead because, you know, I wouldn't, no way I would have my pants hanging off my butt one degree. I'm not going to end the time, but one degree is outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, so we got to, it, go it, ahead, it's, it's very troubling, but there are a it, lot of gears at work. Uh, in regard to keeping especially black men in prison because it it, it allows state power to maintain the status quo. It is, but but, but we black men have, a, have to do a better job as well. And black women have to stop uh, babying black men, you know. I don't need no mother. You know, I've dated a couple of women. They want to treat me like I was their baby. I said, my mother lives in Memphis. Mm-hmm. I need a woman, you know, that, that you know uh-huh. that's not going to treat me like a child. Our Common Ground uh, Voices, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, would say it is ironic that we call our men baby yes. and we say we live in a crib. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is very ironic. Dr. Price, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about these private prisons, the conspiracy to uh, jail our brothers and sisters as part of a social elite movement, as I say, to maintain the status quo, as you say. We'll be right back. You're listening to Our Common Ground. 2014 at our common ground. Black America, a state of emergency. Thank you for tuning in. Drilling down. Just damn. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. This is Alpha, hosting the best of Pushback Talk Radio. The Alpha Show, only at TruthWorks Network, Fridays, 10 p.m.
All across America, people dream of home ownership. Your race, national origin, color of your skin should not affect your dream of owning a home. All too often, lenders target minorities and minority communities with bad loan products, destroying dreams and ruining lives. Lending discrimination is unlawful. If you believe a lender has targeted you with a bad loan, call HUD at 1-800-669-9777. Or go to HUD's website, hud.gov forward slash fairhousing. HUD. One call, many answers. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals, the United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Join India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Fridays and Saturdays, 11 a.m. It's the I Declare Friday and Saturday brunch. If you want your news real and your talk raw and right now, it's Friday and Saturday. India Declare at the I Declare brunch. Real, raw, and right now, India is live. Friday and Saturday morning. 11 a.m. The I Declare Show with India Declare. On Blog Talk Radio. India Declare. Real, raw, and right now. Broadcasting bold, brave, and black. Our common ground is about empowering the voice of our listeners. Giving voice to the black truth in America. Join the conversation at 347 347- 838-9852-347-838-9852. Mass incarceration is not only payback for the civil rights movement, but it reflects a fundamental choice that has been made about how we as a nation will define ourselves in this era of global capitalism. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. And now back to Our Common Ground. And thank you for being with us here tonight at Our Common Ground as we talk about the economics of privatization of America's prison system with Dr. Byron Price. He is the former dean of the School of Business and a professor of public administration at Medgar Evers College of the City University of New York in Brooklyn. And he is the author 
of the 2006 Merchandising Prisoners Who Really Pays for Prison Privatization and the co-editor of a three-set volume, Prison Privatization, a Controversial Industry. And we thank him for being with us. Byron, thanks again. And we've got to go to our phones at the top of the hour. Um, And we thank you for our listeners for being with us. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter at Janice OCG. Uh, And make sure you like us on Facebook and visit our websites. We've got plenty of them. And they do all do different things. We have OurCommonGround.com, which tells you everything that you need to know and places you need to visit about this program. 443, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. You're on the air. Oh, I'm trying to bring you on the air. I really am. Your hand is up. And it's not working. Come on. 443. Hello? Good evening and uh, welcome to 2014 at Our Common Ground. Hello. Am I on the air? Yes, you are. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask Dr. Price. um, Earlier he said that um, and I, I want to make sure that I quote him correctly, that black people are not concerned about um, our people who are going to prison. And I wanted to know, um, does how does class factor into that? Is it the black middle class or is it the black working class or the black poor concerned? Mm, I think that I think that's an that's an excellent question. I think the people that are in a position to help blacks, you know, other blacks who are more affluent, they're not concerned. Mm-hmm. I, and I think there's some of the some, some families that are impacted by uh, someone being in, in jail, they're trying, but the people that are in a position to do something about it aren't really concerned. And 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 and, and you make a, a very excellent point, and, and I think that's in a lot of areas, not not just only prisons, but just period, you know. I think the more affluent some some blacks become, the 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 more they detach from the community, unless they want to be identified with the community, so they don't care. They made it, and so they're successful. So your kids do what they need to do, even even within families. You know, people turn their back on their family members when they become successful. Some people do that. So yes, I I, I should qualify that way. And thank you for that observation. Mm-hmm. So, Dr. Price, um, my my follow-up question to that is, um, if a if a mass movement were to start, because it seems like the black middle class have a lot to lose, it would think I would think that it would require that those persons who um, are impacted by mass incarceration would have to, you know. You know, really, I guess you could really kind of say save themselves, just like what happened with the the um, the welfare rights movement. Well, but the welfare rights movement, who who saved them? Uh, probably most of the time, uh, who saved the welfare rights movement? Well, I mean, most... I'm not I'm not talking about in terms of say, I'm talking about in terms of you know agitating, you know, advocating, advocating, advocating yeah. for this right. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I got you. But who did most of the agitating? Um, what color were the people? They were black. They were black. Okay. So, I guess to get to your question, there's just something about prisons that that people seem less sympathetic to ex-offenders. That's not really a lot of sympathy. And who advocates for ex-offenders? And to your point, yeah, there are a few of us out there advocating, but, you know, you think about this, this criminal Congress, they, I mean, and the Congress has been criminal for a long time. I mean, people try to change laws, but they just ignore things. So now if we try to do like the white guys do in Idaho, said, you know, the tree of liberty has to be watered sometime, you know how that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And so you know how you know you know what's going to happen if we try that so if if we try to sort of uh, i guess mobilize and try to change laws you know these people are ignoring laws because we don't vote for them remember they, they basically have gerrymandered their way to divide a government so they can shut down the government so what way can we do i know the occupy wall street could have uh been good, but not enough people got involved in it. So we have to sustain and mobilize a lot of people. But even the people who have been incarcerated, and there are enough people who have been incarcerated haven't mobilized, you would think that they would uh, mobilize the means of people that have been incarcerated, you know, that have sort of, and because there's a stigma associated with that. So a lot of people probably don't want you to know that they've been incarcerated, but more people that have been, have a criminal record than you realize. So I, I find it kind of interesting that they haven't mobilized to try to address a lot of the issues impacting them, which prevents them from reintegrating back into society. But I, th- I think that's something, you know, we should probably, since Janice, uh, we should probably think about starting that movement. This should be the impetus for the mobilizing that movement. I'm willing you know, to it, do it. Let me Let me jump in here for a minute. I think that... Uh, when we think about it, it is politics that initiates the kind of legislation mm-hmm. and the kind of regulations that has uh, created spoils of mass incarceration, that when people go to, to listen to candidates, uh, both locally and at state and federal levels, they don't think about the question of why the United States imprisons more people, both per capita and in absolute terms, than any other nation in the world, including Russia, China, and Iran. I don't think people have that in mind uh, when they are asking for, when they are offering their political agency at the polls. But see, and, but I agree, I agree. But what about the people who are supposed to be the custodians that we elected to protect us? They're voting for laws to hurt us. Like, think about even the bankruptcy bill. A lot, All the black legislators that voted for the bankruptcy bill, but they protect the banks. So these people that we elect, they don't protect us. So we can't depend on them. We They have demonstrated time and time again that the legislative process does not benefit us so we have to find a different way how to get things done i know it's going to have to go through the legislature but we have to find a different way 
mm-hmm. we need to get I like California referendum. I think we do have to challenge challenge the people who are supposed to be representing us. And I think that our level of accountability to black uh, elected officials ought to be higher on this issue than it, it is. It should. And whites, too, who we elect should be for anybody that we elect, we should hold them accountable. I agree, but but we don't. And so they don't do anything. They collect their checks. And they go to the CDC, have their parties, have their galas. Now, now, Dr. Price, you're starting to sound like me. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll invite you to like, host. I just call it like I see it, you know. Absolutely. You know, but part of the problem, and to the caller from 443, that I want to say, and I keep saying this, that when we say our people, when we say they, when we say us, I think that we don't think about who we are talking about, that we have no sense of the definition of of those. You know, like I said to someone um, in a a hardware store uh, talking about poor people, I said, poor people, they don't consider the question of whether or not the toilet seat makes a noise. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of people we're talking about when we say poor. Mm-hmm. But the but the other is I think that we need to start at looking at the committees at the federal level that have been lobbied by these large corporations that you've been talking about, Dr. Price. We have to start learning to use the agency of our knowledge yes. to make things different. But, well, but we can. But, but we, what but, but, state but we have. you in? In Baltimore. Baltimore, Baltimore, okay. Baltimore, Maryland. Okay. So you got a several historically black colleges. Uh, what you have? Bowie, not Bowie. Is Bowie historically uh, black college? Or that Morgan State is, I know. Well, we have Bowie and Coppin. Okay, and Morgan State. And Morgan State. Well, Morgan uh, Bowie is in Bowie, um, Maryland, but we have Morgan and and Coppin. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Howard. Then, so you go ahead. I'm sorry. Then in in Maryland. We need to start looking at how much, you know, a a basic question is the danger to state finances because of the privatization of prisons. Well, of course, but that's why, here's the thing, this this is a part of the, this is connecting the dots. Well, basically they're dismantling higher education now. You know, you have conservatives are talking about um, decoupling accreditation, okay, talking about performance-based funding. So when you have HBCUs with four-year, 3% graduation rates, and you're going to get money based on graduation rates, although you get a lot of the students that a lot of people don't want, but now they want to tie funding to graduation rates. Okay? Mm-hmm. So now, and then they give you more students more money for Pell Grant, but then you had the for-profit uh, companies that they're trying to funnel the kids into charging more money. So... They're giving our kids worthless degrees, and we're not speaking up. I mean, I mean, and so what's happening is, is that they're dismantling um, public institutions. At every, every time you look around, they're dismantling public institutions. And so when you think about the expansion of prisons and you keep defunding the welfare state, a lot of people are losing their social safety net, and so mm-hmm. they're winding up in prison. And then prisons then serve to placate the growing working class that is dissatisfied with the greater inequalities 
and employment insecurities and to warehouse those who reject the labor market and deem them as disruptive elements, okay? And then you reaffirm the authority of the state by doing that, you see? So, like I tell people, they say, well, black people need to get a job. I said, don't you think black people are tired of working for free? You work for free for slavery in the sharecropping system. They pay mm-hmm. you no money, and now they don't pay you no money now. I, you know, I ain't trying to justify people not working, but, I, you know, it's like you want people to work for free while you steal money. You don't go to jail. Governor, or who is it? Governor Corzine, he said he didn't know where the people's money was. He knew where his $500 million was, but he didn't go to jail. The people from Wall Street didn't go to jail. This 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 is a farce. It's comical. It's comical, but but we 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 take it. You know, we need to go to the street. When I went was in Spain and Greece, those people take to the streets and they shut down the place. So we need to start taking to the streets and shut down the place because we are way too passive. I'm not not just black people. Now, there's a lot of apathy running rampant throughout our country, but especially black people, we have way too many problems to not be progressive and come together like the civil rights movement to address what's going on with the mass incarceration, but also the conspiracy to destroy the black family because now more females are being incarcerated. So now the the primary caregiver is being taken out of the home. And so a lot of our kids are winding up as wards of the state, and so they're following their parents to prison. And then here's another thing that prisons are doing. A lot of, not all of them, but a lot of black men get raped in prison, and they come back home with HIV, and then they infect their women. And so black females are the highest uh, HIV uh, rate. So there are a lot of things about prisons that are destroying our community, and we don't do anything about it. You know, I'm ready. I'm with you. I'm I'm on the front line with you. I'm I'm on the ground <laughs> with you, sister. And so, you know, I, I'm kind of tired. You know, I, I don't really talk a lot. I've been doing a lot of work, and I agreed to do the interview. And I'm just kind of tired of talking. You know, that's why I go to Jamaica. I go to Africa and do work because I'm trying my part to do something about it. And, and, you know, and I use sometimes I use my own funds. Sometimes I'm lucky, I, you know, yeah. people, yeah. you know, fund it. But like Khalil Gibran says, when you give of your possessions you give little but when you give up your time you give a great you give a lot so we need to give some of our time to these kids and these adults but we have to also be responsible ourselves as well because we know these people are targeting our kids for incarceration and we're not engaging them in school you know we don't say anything to them there are some things we can do to make a difference that's right. Thank you, 443, for your call. And for those of you who are listening, one of the things that I say is that if you don't know how many private prisons are in your state, the state where you pay taxes, the state where you live, the state where your children go to school, then you need to find out. And you can find out through the Federal Department of Corrections because the funding goes to the state and to the private prison from the federal right. government. Uh, right. We're going to go to 626. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. It's uh, Stephen Bledsoe from uh, California, and I was uh, listening into what's being said, and I, and I commend Dr. Price, and I, too, want to be on the front line of trying to at least bring 
forth what is happening with mass incarceration and, and the economic impact that it has on us. I mean, when you think about the, the lost wages on top of trying to get back into society at a lower cost, because everybody, it's it's almost like a tax if you are a felon, because they can get you at half price now. Exactly. You're absolutely right, and that's what Dr. Price has been talking about in terms of merchandising. Um, you know, the Dr. sad thing, uh, Janice, real quick, is that these corporations, uh, the, the private prisons, uh, 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 let them work for companies uh, while they're incarcerated, but but these same companies won't hire them when they get out. Right. Now, you can work for you can work for Victoria's Secret and Dell and all these other companies when you're incarcerated and they pay you. And another thing we should do as well, we should uh, require that they pay uh, inmates a livable wage if they're, if they're working so they can pay their child support arrears or whatever restitution. But they should get the minimum wage in their state. They shouldn't be getting 25 cents an hour. Yeah, because one of the things, one of the biggest things is when they was paying, like we was at 12 cents an hour, and then it would cost 25 cents a minute to talk. So those those kind of stresses that it puts on the family just for mere communication. And then on top of that, every time the stamps go up, because that's the only way you can get letters out, it's like five hours. It's probably about five hours worth of work now to send out one letter. So, I mean, they the inside part of it, too, is they keep you yeah. away from family because there is no resources for you to reach out. And that, and that affects the uh, recidivism rate because research demonstrates that those that are disconnected from their families are more likely to reoffend. And see, as Brother Blesso said, and even JPay, he didn't mention JPay. Now, you used to send uh, inmates a book. Now you have to put everything through the commissary, and they take a percentage of, of that money. Right. It's like, it's like in Africa. Some people make only a dollar a day. So if every time, if I come put a dollar down and you take 30 cents of 30% of that, then you're killing me. You're killing me. I mean, these people, it's just a... And that's and the point. Yeah, cottage industries are developing all around. So it's time for us, you know, mass incarceration is going to undermine our community. It's time, and like I said, Brother Bless, so I, he, we got two right here. So it's time for us to jump it off. We have to destroy, like Sister Angela Davis said, prisons are obsolete now. Right. We know, so we have to get rid of prisons, Okay. I know some people, you know, that are, you know, that are, that are very hardened criminals. Then, you know, something can be done. But nonviolent offenders and a lot of people who are coming out trying to get back and reintegrate into society, we got to start creating some jobs yeah. too. We've got okay. to have a solid community advocacy for changing some of these laws that feed into this total conspiracy, and I also throw into there that private, publicly funded schools are killing uh, their way into the pipeline. Mr. Bledsoe, what I want to do, and for our caller from 443, is to invite you to join Dr. Price and I on February 22nd, where we're going to have a plan, a plan of action. We're going to uh, bring the activists on this issue so that we can begin 
to work locally and work out towards some national action uh, on the issue of breaking the chains of, of this conspiracy. But we also need to ask some of the people who have been incarcerated because we, we, we do a lot Absolutely. of theory and so forth, and I think we would be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't have uh, Stephen and, and some of the other ones in from the uh, from the ground ground up. You know, when, when we start out, we, we definitely need to do that. Will you commit to joining us on the twenty second when we are spending two hours talking about um, how we organize? Yeah, I'm committed. I'm uh, okay. definitely well, committed. Uh, whatever I can do to help bring bring it to light. Well, thank you so very much, and we appreciate you being with us tonight. We have got thanks, to brother. Bless so. Four oh four, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call with Dr. Byron Price. Hello, would that be this Lisa Parks here? I'm calling, Dr. Uh, Ms. Janice. Thank you so very much for inviting my cousin, Dr. Byron Price, there this evening. <laughs> oh, we got it family is certainly, now. Real certainly family. Insightful. So uh, wonderful to hear both of you speaking. My cousin has a great deal of passion for this area, and I am so thankful that you joined him in this fight because he's been fighting this fight, wanting to fight this fight for a long time, and it's clear. And we need some help. And I just think, I did want to add that I think in terms of the black family, first of all, the education is being taken away much earlier than college because they mm. are giving these children uh, ADHD diagnosis. Teachers are doing it even before you even see a counselor or a doctor. And they're, they set these children up for failure as mm. early as grade school. And so yeah. if you label children, if you label children and tell them that they can only do and be so much, they then will turn to a life of crime because they don't believe in themselves. Mm-hmm. You've already set them up for that prison, and you know the people are going to make the money off the prison because they have these communities of black babies who are not being taught that they are somebody, that they can do something that they can go anywhere in the world that they want to go. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I just recently I am, wrote uh, uh, an op-ed for a newspaper here in Boston about that particular issue that we are taking uh, even the best and brightest of our children in these schools and creating rules and regulations which are age-inappropriate, mm-hmm. uh, do not yes. support positive educational um, uh, experiences, and they, their spirits for being, um, what they, being educated and being experienced in, in, a, in a, a learning system, are, the, their, their spirit is just being broken by stupid rules uh, brought in by corporations like Teachers of America, uh, young white women who have no understanding of black boys especially and believe that these children need fixing when in fact there is nothing to be corrected other than providing a very good and rigorous education. Here's the thing, Janet, though, Janet. A lot of these teachers are afraid of our kids. And that's, I wrote the Absolutely. article for the, for the Huffington Post about humanizing our schools. So when you're afraid of a child, basically... If 
a child is aggressive, then you think the child is about to do something to you. And so it turns into a criminal incident as opposed to understanding that the kid is just passionate. And as my cousin talked about, how they're sort of labeling these kids. Teacher expectations matter. The 1968 study, uh, the I think it's the, and I might mispronounce it, it's a Pygmalion study, 1968, it gave false information about uh, kids. Uh, like, say, for example, these kids had like an 88, uh, no, 90 IQ, but they gave people uh, information saying the kids had 120 IQ, and they treated the kids like they were, were extremely intelligent, and the ones with the high IQ, they treated them like they were dumb, and it demonstrated that those kids could learn when teachers expected from you. And so we need more people of color in the school system as educational psychologists, and, and, and we can't have them be like these black prosecutors who try to impress their white counterparts by throwing people in jail. See, we need people that will stand up for justice. Okay, as opposed to sort of cowing in fear or kowtowing to people. And not all white people are bad. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is those people who who have demonstrated that they are openly against us, we should be willing to sacrifice our careers like Muhammad Ali and stand up for our principles and our beliefs to protect our kids. But we don't have enough men protecting our kids. More women stand up and protect our kids than men, so the black men got to make up for a lot of things that we haven't done when the women have uh, stood out front to save us, and I'm sure women are probably tired of that. But, you know, we have to have more black men, you know, start taking it on the chin to bring these black boys out of this uh, state that they're in. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I'm ready. Like I say, uh, I'm a soldier, you know, and this is what I'm going to do spending the rest of my life doing. Because oh. I'm, I'm tired. Yeah. I'm like Fannie Lou Hamer now. I'm like Fannie Lou Hamer now. Now, I've been doing this for 29 years, and you know I'm tired. I've been I tired. bet you I are. was talking about, in 1985, the disproportionate discipline of children in schools. And it's still that way. And it's still that way. Mm-hmm. Still that way. Well, let me say that I applaud you both for the work, and if there's anything, and cousin, you know, anything at all that I can do, please keep me informed, and I will certainly give my time. We hope you will help us get people here uh, at our Common Ground on February 22nd, because we're coming back. I will do that. Yes, ma'am, I will do that. We are coming back with some suggestions, and thank you so very much for joining us tonight. See, we well. got family. We got Price family. <laughs> well, that's my cousin. My cousin loves me. She always lifts me up. So, you know, that's, that's, that's what wonderful. we do. Yeah. That's wonderful. 973, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Am I 973? Yes, you are 973. Awesome. Well, my name is Lydia. I'm from New Jersey. I am a former student of Dr. Price from Rutgers University. And I actually actually had a a moment this evening. I did have the kids tune in and listen, but it's past their bedtime, so I sent them off, and we'll listen to it later on. And um, I am a social work supervisor. I am a parent, and I am a former student. So a lot of the classroom lessons that Dr. Price 
in his teachings and lectures and his writings have now transposed themselves into my daily life. And as a parent, the teaching learning assessment is something that you have to work on on a continual basis. It's not just something that you can do, you know, one day or a month. It's something that you have to do on a regular basis. And my daughter is in second grade, and it's unfortunate that I have to, you know, at this stage of the game, you know, advise her and remind her that the people who aren't doing well right now probably won't be doing well 10 years from now. They'll probably end up incarcerated based on the fact that the school-to-prison pipeline determines the number of prisons they're going to need based on literacy scores. So reading, you know, they're trying to give this push towards reading and literacy and being involved, but it's more than just that, like, Band-Aid approach. There's a a deeper-rooted issue than criminalizing the things that happen in school, you know, by the stupid rules, as you were saying before. The the issues that that appear in school come from home, and that piggybacks off the fact that moms now aren't at home. I'm one of the moms that get to stay at home, fortunately. <laughs> but, the, so, but there's also there's also a, rea- a, a realism, and Dr. Price checked me on this. There's a realism that we have two to three generations of the cycle of incarceration, and that is a parent who went to prison and the child of a of of the parent who went to prison mm-hmm. and the child of the parent who went to prison. Three generations. Mm-hmm. It also includes an era of unmitigated, unchecked mental health negligence. Correct. That's one thing I just want to piggyback on, because in my work as a social worker, there's a lot of mental health issues, behavioral health issues, substance abuse issues mm-hmm. that criminalize the non, nonviolent offenders. That, you know, the, the issue is not the fact that they get caught with, you know, a minimal amount of controlled substance. The fact is that they did this because they need money or they did this because they need support. They need help, and there's no other way for them to get it. So you're criminalizing a nonviolent act, and it's just creating a cycle that does not allow for any type of, you know, rehabilitation or corrective action. And and, and there's also one other point about the negligence that comes out of a system of white supremacy, and that is expecting and tolerating that our children will fail, that they will drop out of school, that they will not be educated. That is an expectation created in a system of white supremacy. And it's all calculated in this profit motive motive that Dr. Bryce has so brilliantly written about in terms of how we got to 62% of prison uh, beds in this country are privatized. Well, I do have to pose one question. I would not be a good student if I just came on here to blab. I just wanted to get Dr. Price's viewpoint or perspective on how he proposes to or what is a proposition for a holistic approach for trying to repair the dismantled 
levels of higher education because it's easy to get there, difficult to maintain, and almost impossible to repay with the privatized loans and stuff now. Because as the oldest of four girls, I'm done with school. I have been out of school for a long time. But I have baby sisters who are 15 years apart from me who are really struggling now. And it's it it's almost to the point where it takes them eight years to get out of school rather than, yeah. you know, you graduate in yeah. four years. Yeah. Let's get an answer, and we really appreciate your call, and we hope you'll join us on February 22nd when we oh, talk most definitely. about what are the solutions I, I think that's I think that's an excellent, that's an excellent, yeah, question. excellent uh, question. I think one of the things, um, and I know a lot of people are probably going to go crazy, go ballistic, but I think as, as, as important as uh, having an educated uh populous uh, population, I, I think a higher education should, should be free, personally. I think undergraduate degree should be free. You know, that could be reparations. Since they, don't, they paid everybody else, they could give us reparations, give us at least a college education, you know. And your answer is bumping against the same thing that oh, we have to push against with the privatization of prisons is, is capitalism. The exactly, form of I, capitalism in the United States. I agree, but I think we, but I think we can solve, solve that. Remember, I said earlier, black people spend one point one trillion dollars. I think we could fund education for kids that want to come to school, to, mm-hmm. to attend school, and, and I think you know we stop buying Bentleys, you know, uh, and stop buying a lot of these other cars and giving Mercedes Benz and all these people our money. We could fund, we could fund education for our kids. Right. I, Let's I go think to that's... another call. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think that we are so dysfunctional in our organization yeah. and in our political accountability that and, we miss the mark on a lot of this. Nine seven nine, you're on the air with Dr. Yeah. Price. Dr. Price, how you doing? This is uh, Dr. Tommy Curry. How you doing, uh, Dr. Curry? Ooh, I'm Dr. Good, Tommy so I'm good. Curry, knocking yes, them out yes, in the chess masters today. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Dr. Price, I'm, I'm very interested in your work, very interested Thank in your you, in your talk, uh, and I really appreciate it. Uh, I'm in a different field. I'm a philosopher, but I think that we have okay. some overlapping interests. Uh, one of the main things that I really enjoyed about it was that you emphasized corporatization and this kind of competitive uh, or the power that we have to compete against in terms of manipulating and controlling our own money and what we spend on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to ask you about kind of the gender aspect. I'm sure you're familiar with Michelle uh, Alexander's work. Yeah. Uh, the new Jim Crow. Uh, she yeah. specifically in that work, she refers to black men as an undercast. Now, she's been attacked because she people are arguing, people like uh, Naloe Rooks has argued that she's excluded black women, black female prisoners, or even the uh, sexual vulnerability that black women uh, have in that system. Uh, but when you look at the areas or you look at the numbers, you see a huge disparity, over half a million black men versus 26 to 30,000 black women in federal prisons. Mm-hmm. How do you think the privatization of the prison industrial complex, these new prisons, you know, rise of companies like CCA, how do you think that specifically targets or affects black men? And what does that say in terms of how we lose political and economic power in black communities? Because I don't see a lot of work on how losing this amount of black men actually affects the economic well-being, the political well-being of black people overall. I think that's a excellent question, Dr. Kerry. I've started to, to do some research there. But, but, see, I think part of the problem when you think about 
black women, black women have never been seen, viewed as threatening to the superstructure, okay? Mm-hmm. Black men have always been been a threat, okay? They're worried about you taking their women. They're worried about you basically, up, you know, uh, you know, rising up. And so when I think about, you know, what's being done to black to black men, basically you destroy the family. Yeah, you know, I know Willie Lynch is not historical, but they talk about the fact that once you destroy the black man in front of the black woman, then the black woman would socialize a black male to be passive, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the lessons that Willie Lynch provides. But then when you think about the feminization of poverty, when you remove the black male as a breadwinner, as someone that contributes to the family, then you had a female. And females, when you look at how how much there's gender um, inequality in pay as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so when you take into consideration black male aren't able to contribute, because once you had that felony conviction and you check, okay, mm-hmm. then you basically don't get a job. So then the black male sees his father not working, and then the tension begins to exist, and then some, some women begin to sort of, uh, I don't know if it's always, I don't think it's always intentional, but then, you know, you live, you don't really have respect for a man who can't take care of his family. And these judges do a lot of stupid things like compound the problem. You have a minor incident, they throw you in jail, and then you go to jail and you lose your job, and then you can't pay child support arrears or you can't take care of your family, and so then you wind up in the system. And so the economic impact of taking that income out of the system and and, and then to sort of, the, the, this, the, you know, you fragment the family as well. And so you don't have these nuclear families, so you're destroying the families. And so a lot of these black boys, you know, then then you have sort of the families sort of uh, separate. Then you have a lot of these black boys mad because their daddy don't care anything about them, so they became become angry. And right. so and you think about this lack of cultural alignment. You think about being, you know, then they're looking for family somewhere, so they get into the game. So I think you point out, you know, in, in your question that, there's a lot of sort of a, for lack of a better word, there's a multiplier effect when you see the disproportionality of black men being incarcerated and right. what it does economically, socially, spiritually, and physically to the family. I think it, it affects us in all kinds of ways. And, and as you said, you know, you think about it, when a lot of black males die, mm-hmm. you know, what happens to their money they paying in the Social Security system? They, they just take that money. They right. just like Mobutu Sese Siko of uh, of um, Zaire, you know. Basically, he stole all the money from Africa, and the Western banks keep the money. Although the people in Zaire, West well, DRC, now in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they starving, but they keep the billions that he stole. Well, what right. about all the money that the black men, you know, basically lose in the Social Security system that they pay into? Absolutely. See, that's a really good point because I'm. I'm always fascinated. I mean, you have people like Patricia Hill Collins who's actually argued that black women deserve reparations uh, because they're not getting married. But there's no analysis of the prison industrial complex or homicide rates or anything else or high drug convictions when she makes that type of argument. So there's always this emphasis on black female poverty, which, you know, we know certainly exists, you know, demographically. Yes. But there's never that tying that into the destruction of nuclear families or even how 
you know, uh, income discrimination or sex discrimination, lowering women's incomes fundamentally affects it because, as you say, they don't have a male uh, bringing in money, especially given that we know now that black men are the most unemployed group in America. So here's the thing. You propose it, so I'm going to – if you find my On email – On the 22nd, Dr. Curry. Well, I'm yes, going to give him my, I'm I'm give him my, I'm give him my email, and we can, since we both in uh, in higher ed, you in higher ed, right? I'm in philosophy. A&M. Yeah, okay, A&M. so I used to teach at Texas Southern, so we can write this article. We can write a couple articles on this together, brother. Absolutely. You all can do a radio show on this. <laughs> well, I don't like to talk that to. much. We, gonna, we can talk about that radio <laughs> show, but we're going to write, too, though. Absolutely. Okay. I appreciate it. Thanks Thank for you, that. Dr. Okay. Curry. Yes, ma'am. Uh, we've got to run, but... That, that was exactly what I was trying to get early, get to earlier, and you came in and you razor sharped it. Thank you so very much. I but on the twenty second, we do need to talk about specifically uh, the incarceration of black men, because the, the idea is that our prisons are filled with black men. Dr. Byron Price, this has been such a a very useful conversation, and I am so glad that you joined us. And uh, for those of you who are listening, you can read his work and find out more about his work at byroneugeneprice.com, www.byroneugeneprice.com. And I've posted... Two of your pieces that I think everyone should read, The Motivation Behind Black Imprisonment and How the Dysfunctional Education System Feeds Mass Incarceration. I want to thank you so very much, and I look forward to having you back with us on February 22nd. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. you I'm going to put you on mute, and you stay with us. Okay. I'm 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 gonna be real close to you over the next couple of months because we okay. have got to organize, agitate, uh to effect change uh in this area. Otherwise this conspiracy will continue. Doctor Price, thank you for your work, thank you for your scholarship, thank you for your passion, and thank you for bringing your cousin and your students to our Common Ground, and we hope they'll join us again. We want to thank all of you for your uh, very wonderful uh, calls, uh, and we were especially pleased to have an Our Common Ground voice, Dr. Tommy J. Curry, uh, joining us, and um, actually he is mentioned in our close. I want you to stay with us because tonight... Uh, at our common ground, we are saying uh, we are standing in an eternal ovation uh, for someone who has meant so much uh, to black people in this country. So we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to close out. The Wilmington Massacre of 1898 was a bloody attack on the African-American community of Wilmington, North Carolina. Wilmington on Fire, a documentary film, reveals the truth. They say the Cape Fear River was full of bloody black bodies that day, that black people couldn't find their way, that black men died from gunshots in their backs, that black women ran to the swamps across the tracks, that very smart and bold black men 
were put on the train and given a free ride out of town where they were told to remain. They say that the dead bodies were left in the streets. The foul smell was so strong that buzzards circled for weeks. The Wilmington Massacre of 1898 was a bloody attack on the African-American community by a heavily armed white mob with the support of the North Carolina Democratic Party on November 10, 1898 in the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina. It is considered one of the only successful examples of a violent overthrow of an existing government and left countless numbers of African-American citizens dead and exiled from the city. This event was the springboard for the white supremacist movement. It's a feature-length documentary that will give a historical and present-day look at the Wilmington Massacre of 1898 in Wilmington, North Carolina. The film will feature interviews from historians, authors, activists, and direct descendants of the victims of the 1898 massacre. Wilmington on Fire is a feature-length documentary that will give a historical and present-day look at the Wilmington Massacre of 1898 and how the descendants of the victims of the event are asking for legal action in regard to compensation. Hope you will join us at Our Common Ground as we meet with the filmmaker of Wilmington on Fire, Christopher Everett. Next Saturday, January 18th, I'll be listening for you with Chris Everett and the story of the Wilmington Massacre. Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves. And we thank you so very much for joining us tonight in our season opening of Our Common Ground. This has been wonderful. If I could get this many people to call into this program every Saturday, uh, every program, I would really consider going back to uh, doing uh, nightly shows. Uh, we hope that you will continue to support independent talk radio. Talk that matters. It is not enough to just talk. We have to begin to organize, strategize, and agitate. And the person, one of the people who taught me more about how you turn your strategies, your thoughts about your being in this country, was Leroy Jones. And we hope that uh, Amiri Baraka, formerly known as Leroy Jones, and we hope that you will spend some time this week studying Amiri Baraka. We hope that you will visit the website of Dr. Byron Eugene Price dot com. And we hope that you will support us by liking us on Facebook, subscribing to us on Facebook, uh, going to our website at ourcommonground.com. Our program notes are located at ourcommonground-talk.com. And you can connect with 
our other websites and information. We have two very good weekly publications ongoing, the Our Common Ground Omnibus and Scribbling Race on Common Ground. Thank you for being with us. Thanks to all of our callers and all of our uh, listeners in our chat room and those of you who are on your devices. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and this program and every program is provided at blogtalkradio.com in our archives. Thanks to Dr. Byron uh, Price for joining us tonight, and he will be joining us on February 22nd to really begin to talk about the solutions to the privatization, to profits and pipelines in America. I'm Janice Graham, and it's been a pleasure to have such a guest and to have you. Thank you for joining us tonight on Our Common Ground, and a special thanks to Dr. Byron Price. We'll be here each Saturday, Black America, a state of emergency at Our Common Ground. I invite you to join us each Saturday night, 10 p.m. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. We'll see you next week. Talking about the film, Wilmington on Fire, with the filmmaker Christopher Everett. He wrote, In America, black is a country. Amiri Baraka, one of the most influential African-American writers and black activists of his generation. He courted controversy as a poet, playwright, and provocateur, and was a primary intellectual architect of the black arts and black liberation movement. He was a writer of poetry, drama, fiction, essay, and music criticism. Mary Baraka, Transition to become an ancestor this week, January 9th, in Newark, New Jersey. His birth home and the place where he created his greatest work and charged our greatest initiatives for liberation. He was 79 years old. Amiri Baraka began writing in the 1950s under his original name, Leroy Jones, as a poet and jazz critic on the fringes of beat movement in Greenwich Village. He later became a disciple of Malcolm X and an advocate of a militant black separatist movement built around African-American cultural traditions, racial pride, and defiance. We honor his life, love, and capacity tonight. This giant who loved us struggled on our behalf, offered the insights that we needed, and ushered us in the era where we discovered ourselves. I do this work in part as a result of a man that I met in my youth named Leroy Jones. He left us much, and with it, he left himself. Though his work and the lessons he taught, we will not and cannot say goodbye. We can only take deep bows and offer an eternal ovation. I knew his rhythms long before I discovered 
what a deeply complex organism this black country is. It is impossible to draw the parameters around what I learned from such sources that he gave us, dead lecturer and Dutchman, by reading Blues People and Black Fire while in college. Dr. Tommy J. Curry, our, our Common Ground Voice, wrote this week about him, that his poetics insisted upon black history, the knowledge and creative force of black life as the basis of black struggle. He ended his piece with this. We lost a giant of our day. Amiri Baraka was a revolutionary thinker that sought to problematize the assumption that we are all human, men are women, are even children of God. His work pointed out that there is inhumanity that exists not as shades of gray, but in black and white. The Wake for Baba Amiri Baraka will be held on Friday, January 17th at Metropolitan Baptist Church in Springfield on Springfield Avenue in Newark from 4 to 9 p.m. He will be funeralized on Saturday, January 18th at Newark Symphony Hall in Newark at 10 a.m. His poetry, like Somebody Blew Up America, was an attack and exposing of the alleged black intelligentsia that continues to cowardly kneel before the empire. Rather than speak out against the imperialism that created the impetus for terrorism, we close tonight at our common ground in honor of Amiri Baraka. Here is his Somebody Blew Up America. I start here with an eternal ovation to this father, brother, and warrior. Who will survive America? Few Americans. Very few Negroes and no crackers at all. Who will survive America? Few Americans. Very few Negroes and no crackers at all. Following the wedding of the yellow robot will not survive. She's old anyway, and 
church in the wind. Old people know. Christians know. First Negroes be invisible to truth. 1944 Minnesota. No, no. Nothing of that will be anywhere. It will be burned clean. It might sink and steam up the sea. America might. And no American. Very few Negroes will get out and no crackers at all. No crackers at all. No crackers at all. No crackers, no crackers at all. But the black man will survive America. His survival will mean the death of America. Okay, okay, we wish each other good luck, 